From the Clock Tower at Mountaineer, this is the C.S. Lewis Book Club. I'm Dan. And I'm Alex. Welcome to the Book Club. We're C.S. Lewis fans, not experts, and we're glad you're here with us. Today we are talking about The Magician's Nephew, chapters 8 through 15. And spoiler alert, if you haven't read along, we will spoil. So go read, come back. And if you don't, some of us have, some of you guys have sent us messages saying that you're just listening, which is awesome. Yeah, it's a little overwhelming <laughs> for us to know that people are actually listening to us talk. But next week, we, we're starting The Last Battle, chapters one through seven. So for today, a little bit of housekeeping. Alex, you have a note about the deplorable word. Yeah, I feel like last episode, and I don't know because I haven't listened to it. I haven't listened to it yet or like what we talked about. So I can't remember if we even really covered the deplorable word very well. And I, I don't think we did. We we kind of glossed over it. Yeah. So I want to touch on that before we get any further, just because that's such an important, I think, even applicable idea for our world and even historically, right? There's an obvious allusion, especially when C.S. Lewis was writing this book to the A-bomb and that one I totally missed. I just thought cool, magical word. And I did not make that connection. Well, and I think it's important to make the connection just because the, in the later half of the book, the second half of the book, there's we're talking a little bit more about where the power should come from and understanding the authority even of God and what man thinks, you know, what humans think they can accomplish without God, you know, coming in by the gate, we'll get there. and. When people discover things, scientific discoveries, I think we have the tendency to think that it's our our own power that did it. And we say, look at the glory of man and what we can do. And there's that moment where Jadis's sister comes up the step steps, right? And you have this confrontation. Well, face she's off. Yeah, the face off. <laughs> and the sister says, victory. And Jada says, yes, but not for you. And then uses the deplorable word. And in those contexts, I'm always like, oh, poor sister, you know, <laughs> <laughs> she's obviously the victim of this. But as far as the evidence that we have, she's the second most evil person in the world, maybe even the most evil. She just didn't know the deplorable word because we know Jadis found it and or figured it out and uh, the sister didn't. And so realizing that uh, we talked kind of about the power hierarchies and the will to power. And where if you, your paradigm for the whole world is just where you fall in the power hierarchy and how you can climb that ladder and subdue other people to your power and gain more and more. This is the inevitable result. If that's your ideology, there's no other possible pathway except this competition of power to the point where if somebody has the ability to destroy the whole world, eventually that contention will come to that use. And the scary thing is, is we know the deplorable word. I mean, humans on earth. In fact, we even know which countries have the secret to the deplorable word. And sometimes when we get in these power flexing back and forth, and obviously I'm not in government, I'm not, I don't have this power to decide foreign affairs and how we interact with Who's other people. carrying the football? <laughs> right. So... I don't know. It's, it's just tricky. But this is something that unless we can purify our hearts to the desire of power over each other, we will end up as charn. And yeah, how does that work with just a simple person like me who doesn't have any of that 
place to wield that power. I think we just have examples all around us and maybe the world will end and that's okay because our salvation is individual, right? God knows us individually in, in our hearts. And so what's more important than whether or not the human species exists is whether or not is if I'm a good person and if I interact with other people in a loving and Christ-like way. That reminds me, the other day I was listening to a talk or a sermon about having Christ in our hearts. And it was cool. He was quoting someone else, but he essentially went from, if you have Christ in your heart individually, then you won't be at battle with the world around you. If two people have it in their hearts, then they will never battle with each other. If a community has it in their hearts, then, and it goes out to that global scale, then we would have essentially world peace or we would be at peace with one another. And I, I, I love that, that purify, that invitation to purify our hearts Yeah, and the, the only real way that we avoid the deplorable word, right? Yeah. And we can demand other people act a certain way, but we only have one vote in how the human species behaves. And that's our own, our own, our own selves. Yeah. So if you want to make a change, I mean, you can obviously try to convince people not to be contentious. Oh, you almost went down the man in the mirror route, which I was excited about. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you jumped the other way. That's fine. <laughs> oh, well, go listen to Michael Jackson. He'll help you. <laughs> I don't know if I endorse that. <laughs> well, the song is good. The song is good. The song is good. Uh, okay, so the deplorable word. Uh, one, uh, my housekeeping minute for today came, I was listening to, we'd released a past episode, and you made a point which, which really has stuck with me, and I wanted to reiterate for just a second, because I hope that if it's helpful for me, it might be helpful for someone else, which was around... Your mind never shuts off. It's always running. S asleep, awake. I, I, I've had that experience where I go to sleep and I wake up and I realize my brain's been working on a problem or trying to solve something all night. And I can tell because... You wake up it, exhausted. It, I, I wake up halfway through a, a, a thought. And because of that, it's so important that we have good content that we're repeating to ourselves. And you call it a mantra, call it whatever you want. Uh, you mentioned C.S. Lewis really thought it was a good idea to memorize scripture mm -hmm. because it, it filled your mind with words of truth. And I, and I heard a psychologist the other day say, I don't believe in positive thought. This idea, think positive thoughts. He said, I, I believe in accurate thought with a positive spin. Think accurately, think truthfully, think real. And it, it was a reminder to me that the benefit that it can have in our lives to have good words, truth that we fill our minds with and say to ourselves and read and memorize and how that can help us in our day-to-day -day life if we're continually filling that. And if, we're, and if we're not and we're letting whatever content or media or whatever else fill our minds, I, I don't think the outcome's going to be positive. We have to be intentional about it. Yeah. The truth has to come first. Our faith and our hope, if they're not founded in something that we believe to be true or that is ultimately true, then that's what superstition is. And so you will see in these chapters um, how truth needs to win out before we start seeking our desires. And our desires need to be based in those transcendentals of truth, goodness, and beauty.
I know where you're going with that. So okay, let's get let's there. do it. <laughs> All right, so I'll do the quick overview of chapters eight through fifteen. So here's your spoiler: uh, Diggory and Polly manage to transport Queen Jadis and a few others back to the Wood Between the Worlds. Although intending to return her to the dying world of Charn, they arrive at an empty place where they witness the creation of the world of Narnia by the song of a great lion. For bringing Jadis into Narnia, the lion gives Diggory a task to retrieve a golden apple from a walled garden far to the west, which will protect Narnia from her evil for hundreds of years. After completing the task, Diggory, Polly, and Uncle Andrew return to London with a gift to cure Diggory's mother. So, Alex, any themes that stood out to you on this one? Yeah, there is this theme. It's kind of going back to the idea of this being about Venus, this book being the cosmological spirit of Venus and, and copper being the metal of that celestial body. Which I was, I was interested to hear your thoughts on this because I definitely saw, obviously, an entire world is being created, which, right, creation and green. And so I saw that in it, but I was interested to see where else you saw Venus as far as from a thematic yeah, from the instructive perspective, what how copper and gold interact. Venus is Fortuna Minor, and then Jupiter is Fortuna Major. And whenever that you Venus takes that subordinate place, it is goodness. But when it tries to be its own, you know, the maximal power itself or the the motivation all on its own without that subordination to Jupiter that's where you get kind of the more destructive, fiery, impassioned um, elements of Venus. I, just last night, I saw Venus in the night sky just after sunset, and it was, it was bright. And I almost had this thought, uh-oh. little too bright. <laughs> little too bright. It's getting brighter than Jupiter. And, and Venus is often brighter than Jupiter. But one of the ways that I think, and I was just obviously with the Venusian-type attitude of Aphrodite and, and romance, Eros, all of that, my wedding ring is rose gold, and rose gold is an alloy of gold and copper, but it's primarily gold, right? It's not a goldish copper. It's a rose gold, and I think that I'm glad, you know, I didn't get this ring with, the, with that in mind, but I thought it was kind of apropos for a marital relationship being first founded in the gold and the power of God before the more rom the romantic aspect kind of beautifies it. I think rose gold's prettier than yellow gold, but it's because it comes the copper comes secondary to the gold. And you'll see those themes. There's the red apple compared to the gold apple, and the red apple's different and and that color comparison. I don't think that you need to get too bogged down in the cosmology of it all, but that idea of subordination and understanding the true hierarchy of power, because if you eliminate God from your ideology of truth, then all you have is each other to compete with and to try to climb the ladder and push down. And, and, and you can think of all the imagery of, of the battle of comparison. But when you have God above all of it and you're all, we're all subordinate to God, then we can work with each other in a way that's synergetic, I think mm -hmm. if that's a word. So yeah, the theme of subordination, yielding, selflessness, all of those types of aspects of goodness that are important for us 
to understand our our true role and and hopefully I'll be able to bring that out as we go through elements of the book and how that how that has helped me understand why this book isn't so important and and how to apply these relationships and character traits to my own life. Yeah, I love that. The the theme that stood out to me was selfishness and selflessness and you talk often about how C.S. Lewis, you don't think he, he was super intentional about, okay, now I'm going to try and write this aspect of Venus into the book, but that he kind of flipped on the channel and then wrote. And I like that idea. And I actually, when I look at Uncle Andrew, especially when he's in Narnia and just every single thing word that comes out of his mouth, it's like if you flipped on the channel of what would a completely self-centered person do in this instance? Uncle Andrew. And obviously it's almost, it is comical how Lewis writes about how the animals treat him and how he's reacting to everything going on. But yeah, I, I think it's really cool to see Diggory obviously battling between being selfless, completely selfless, and even that that interplay between thinking you're doing a selfless thing, but still having selfish motivations and trying to find that line for himself. And I think it also ties to subordination of, of selflessness, kind of, to what, what your highest value or where your allegiances are. So we'll get into that. But I, I saw that throughout the whole second half of the book, and I thought it was great. The reason I, I keep bringing up the Michael Ward planetary stuff, and I say it's Michael Ward, it's actually C.S. Lewis, but Michael Ward wrote about that book about it. So if, the, if you want to learn more about that, you can read Planet Narnia. Is because when I have my mind on that channel, so much of, the, of these books just kind of come out a little more meaningfully. You can, you can see just a line about Uncle Andrew fantasizing about even putting cruise ships in the ground, <laughs> you know, yeah. and them growing up. And, and then Diggory's like, or maybe it could help Mother if we're in the land of youth. And he's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And it's like, oh, he's just totally self-absorbed. He's in the copper without any of the gold. It just really helps me kind of stay in that, that. Those themes really just help me see the moral through and through and how it plays off in, what, in ways that I wouldn't have not expected. Yeah. All right. Should we jump in? Yeah. Okay. So first part, this is, this is a small moment that I really loved was Jadis is, I think she's standing on top of the buggy or whatever it is. It's like a 20th century horse-drawn cab that has the cabbie sitting on top in the front and then a, a compartment with, with people sitting beneath or in a little compartment. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this moment where she's, she's standing there, the crowd's gathered, and I think she announces herself something like she's the queen or says you can't. We her. are the Empress Jadis. Yes. We, we, does she say we? Yeah. It's like the royal it's we. Weird. It's talking about yourself and your majesty. You're more than just an individual because of how great you are sort of thing. I don't know if I'll ever get to the point in my life when I can <laughs> use we. <laughs> That's my uh, this, uh, pronouns. Uh, anyways. So she says she, the people all say, oh, long live Queen Jadis or something. And she flushes and bows a little bit. And then the people laugh because they, were, they thought it was funny that she actually took this seriously. I love the irony of this moment. This is a woman or witch who has just finished destroying all life on the planet she came from. 
she could not care less about the people who are cheering for her, and yet their cheers matter to her. Yeah. And she took it seriously in this moment. And then once she realizes that they're laughing at her, she turns aggressive and violent and screams at them. And there's this line where it says, this was the first time where she sounded genuinely happy. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I love this. I, lo- I love how Lewis is describing, is showing us this, per- the personality or who this person is, the witch. But w- what does it make you think of? Well, she's still insecure. She's still desperate to have power over anything, everything. Any, t- any demonstration of power from anything else is a threat to her. So she flushes red because she, it, it is affecting her. It's reassuring that the thing that she thinks about herself is true in some way. You know, the, the, and this is true about everybody who's seeking power and comparison and trying to posture over other people is why are they trying so hard to prove that they're better than somebody else? unless they don't really believe it. It's the insecurity that makes you go around telling other people how much better th- better you are. If you were, then you wouldn't have to tell anybody. When people cheer for you, Jesus doesn't flush when he's riding in on the, a donkey into Jerusalem and the waving palm branches, you know, that's, it's just factual. He is the Messiah and the, and the King of Kings. And so when he comes in and you say, there's the King of Kings, he can actually be magnanimous and turn around and heal them instead of taking it all in for himself. He doesn't need to take any of the glory because it's already there. He's already full. And Jadis in this instance is still so thirsty for glory and power because she's parched. In her own mind, she's not enough. She needs to continually validate herself and she needs to continually seek the validation of others, even if she doesn't care about anybody. And all ever anybody else even can provide her is that validation, even in dying. Hmm. So at, after this, they've, they've now arrived in the blank space of Narnia and this lion begins to sing. And... As the world starts to become created, first of all, I love that you have Uncle Andrew and the witch who keep talking and interrupting this. I don't know the way it's described. I don't really know if I could imagine something so beautiful as watching the Savior create, right? And the way C.S. Lewis describes it is just beautiful watching Aslan create this world. And every time they keep talking, the cabbie keeps being like, this is a time for listening and watching. This isn't a time for talking. Like, shut up. And he says, glory be, I'd, I'd have been a better man if I'd known something like this existed. And so what it made me think of was what are the things that I, that I have faith and believe exist that if I kept them more present, that I will live a better life. What are those for you? Well, for the, for the cabbie, it was knowing that your world, yourself, and, and everything you have around you is not everything. That you're small. I think of the Carl Sagan pale blue dot looking at the world from through the rings of Saturn. 
right? It's the, I think it's the Voyager um, satellite turned back and yeah. looked at Earth. And realizing how small you are can make you feel insignificant or can fill you with wonder about the grandeur of the cosmos, right? And that's what they're experiencing. They're experiencing the the genesis of a cosmos. They see the stars come into existence and the land and everything. And and it probably would make somebody who's totally self-focused feel small and insignificant. That's why Jadis hated what was going on. Oh, look at all this, this power that I'm observing. But power is all, all, what I should have, not what anything outside of me should have. And so the cabbie, who's he's, his job, he's not this really eminent figure. He's a pretty humble guy. Uh, you can even tell by the way that he talks. He's got the Cockney accent and everything. And I think Kenneth Branagh does a great job of that. But he sees the power and it brings him with wonder. He's not trying to be copper posturing as greater than gold. He's copper admiring the gold. And seeing the gold just fills his heart with something, you know, what is wonder and what is awe, the numinous, the experience of godliness. All things denote there is a God. He's experiencing that if you knew there was God, a God, and let's say your humble life from before didn't really present that to you very frequently. Me knowing there's a God makes me want to be a better person. I think really since we've started doing this podcast, there's been so many moments across the Narnia series where I think Lewis is pointing towards this type of idea. And it's made me slow down. I'll be out on a walk with my kids or walking to the park or doing what I normally do. And I have so many more moments where I just have a a small glimpse or a couple seconds where I just feel gratitude. I feel in awe by, by nature and beauty and just things as they are, not looking to change them, not looking for what they're going to do for me tomorrow, which we'll see later on with, with Uncle Andrew. The second he realizes the world can enrich him or make him money, that's when he becomes interested. Before that, he just wants to leave. And so I, I don't know exactly. It hasn't been a conscious decision. It, I guess the conscious decision has been to fill my mind with these things. And then the unconscious product has been a little bit more of the numinous, a little bit more of, of that feeling of grandeur and awe, which has been really nice. Anything that will take you out of yourself. You can't, I mean, you can't totally be out of yourself. Everything yeah. you've experienced is through the windows of your own eyes. But what it means to be taken out of yourself is to appreciate your order in the hierarchy of the cosmos. It's almost contradictory, but we are nothing compared to everything else. And yet we're the children of God. And so with that comes this responsibility of, um, of living up to that, not by our own merit, but by God's merit. Like we can't do anything without, and it's, it's this crazy paradox, I think, of existence. And that's the paradox of the gospel is you are nothing but God can make you everything. And to kind of be aware of that, Jesus says, he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. The idea that if you want to have the things that are in store for you, you can't seek them directly. You must first seek the kingdom of God. And then all of that that you desire will come with it. If you get rid of the gold, and you just seek your desire, your copper first, 
you're not even going to get that. It'll corrode and, you know. And so the way that Viktor Frankl talks about this is that if you, if you pursue happiness, you're not going to get happiness. I had a professor, Brent Slife, who he talked about the end suit of happiness in, in reference to Viktor Frankl. That if we could think of the things that we desire most, we'll get those things as they ensue, meaning as they just happen almost on the periphery or, or by happenstance, if we focus on the pursuit of something greater than ourselves, right? When you're selfless, you can learn to love. You can't learn to love by seeking out um, a relationship where somebody loves you. Right. You have to love, you have to, you have to participate first. You have to sacrifice and give yourself and take risk. And then you'll be filled with love. In fact, that can actually be used in a, the wrong, in a problematic way. It's so effective. The magic always works. It's so effective as a tool for learning to love, to love first or to, to receiving love that if you sacrifice for somebody who's not worthy of your sacrifice, you'll learn to love them and then you won't, they won't love you back. And that's how a lot of abusive relationships form is you have somebody sacrificing for a relationship, but there's no, there's no reciprocation of that sacrifice. And so the person who's doing all of this work uh, actually is in, from as far as their heart's concerned, a loving relationship, but it's not returning. You don't have to worry about that with God. You love God, it will come back infinitely to you. He loved us first. And so we can actually put God in this unfair, uh, almost abusive relationship. He's <laughs> sacrificing, doing all this stuff to love us, and it's working. He loves us completely and unconditionally. And if we don't reciprocate the love, well, we lose. And I think that's just the magic always works. And the magic of love is if you sacrifice for somebody, you, you serve, you dedicate yourself to service, you're going to be filled with love, whether you like it or not. You can't operate in a loving way without the love coming after it. How do you think you balance this issue you're talking about of the, the fruit always works Ser, serving and loving and, and leading out with that is going to create love in a relationship with the normal shortfalls that humans are going to have between each other in a relationship. When, when does it flip from between abuse and just humans falling short between each other, but there still is that give and take? Would you, I mean, would you have a recommendation for how somebody would may identify that as they're dating or in their relationships? Come in by the gate or not at all. In, in John 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd and that he is the door to the sheepfold and that the shepherd comes in through the door and the thief or the robber comes in by some other way, jumping over the wall. In, in a, like a romantic relationship, if you do not put... Um, true love, charity, which always involves a relationship with God, with Jesus, if you don't put that first, you're setting yourself up. And, and that doesn't mean that every relationship that isn't founded on Christian virtues, well, on specifically labeled Christian we'll virtues. We'll call them Christian virtues, but if it's not founded on truth. And if it's not founded on sacrifice, all the things, because there, there are people who are not Christian 
who C.S. Lewis would say are on their way yeah. to becoming it, whether they know it or not, because they're living by the things that, makes, they, that make one Christian. It's not a label, it's a lifestyle. And if you emulate the character of Jesus, then you'll be filled with that love. That helps me. It's, it's that prioritizing because I'm sitting here talking about the second commandment and you're pointing us back to the first. If I have love for God, if I have love for Christ, then that is going to help me. I think if I'm living by true principles, that will help me identify an abusive relationship. If my priorities get out of whack, then that's how I can get lost in a relationship that might be abusive or, or isn't balanced. And so the balance comes when we put the gold before the copper, when we subordinate. Yeah, and, and obviously the magic works, right? The, you can get into abusive relationships by serving without the reciprocation. You can't continue it that way, though, with love, because love doesn't allow somebody else, the person, the object of the love, to do evil things. You wouldn't let them become evil if you loved them. It doesn't, it doesn't benefit anybody to be an abuser, so don't let yourself be abused. So the come in by the gate or not at all, what that means to me is that if you have true, if you're following true principles of love, what's coming first is giving rather than receiving, then you'll receive more and more, right? And, or you'll at least put yourself in a position where you can make a uh, good righteous judgment about the relationships, get into a relationship where you're giving. And if it's not coming back to you, shift, change, go somewhere else, look for it somewhere else. Your initial question was, how can you know in a loving relationship, and this is romantic or even just friendship, how can you discern whether the relationship is worth your sacrifice? Is that what? A lot of times we talk about lose yourself and you shall find it, you know, serve and give and don't focus on yourself and be selfish. How can you keep that, from being a martyr? Is that, that person, sometimes you see that person in a relationship and it's an abusive relationship and they're just giving and sacrificing and they're trying to lose themselves in this thing and their spouse or their friend is a tyrant. Yeah. And so what, what, why, would, why would them trying to follow some really good, true principles lead them into that type of situation? Which I, I think the answer is, they've made that about their identity maybe of yeah. being a sacrificer and selfless instead of finding their identity in Christ who would not just help them work on themselves, but also they would look to their tyrant husband. And in that light, they should be able to see, okay, I'm, I'm actually enabling Eustace in this moment. I'm not, <laughs> I need to stand up to this and help them act righteously. God doesn't just want us to be martyrs to every cause. I would say that, and this is part of putting the order, the power in the right way in, in hierarchy and even going back to the deplorable word and the magic and coming in by the, all of these symbol, the symbolism. I love the scientific method. And I think the scientific method is something that even Jesus talks about, like understanding the fruit of a, tr of a tree, a good, good tree beareth good fruit and, and reevaluate whether something's good or not with the scientific method. Science is really important, not as a religion, but as a secondary process for finding truth. So what healthy relationships involve is the circ circular reciprocation of service and uplifting, edifying behavior. You could call that charity. If 
the relationships that you're trying to form don't have that output, then it really isn't of God. You can't have a relationship by yourself. That's a contradiction in terms. It re- involves at least two people. And so when you experiment with that sort of thing, you take the risk. True love does require risk. You're dealing with other people that have their own agency. They might not reciprocate. Well, you do what you need to do. You're prudent. You're paying attention to the evidences, to the signs, to the whatever is coming back to you. And if you need to, maybe the loving thing is to end a relationship. I loved the example you gave of looking for being a little bit scientific and looking for the good fruit that can come from the relationship. Because if the relationship is righteous and good, we should see good fruit come from that. And that doesn't mean that there won't be imbalances sometimes. That doesn't mean that you might have to give more than you receive at different times during a relationship. But are you becoming a better person? Are they becoming a better person? Are you growing together towards Christ? If that is happening, then I think you probably can check the box a little bit or, or know that you're moving in the right direction versus abusive relationship. One or both of you aren't actually making progress in that, in towards Christ. The fruit isn't that you'll feel good all the time. Part of charity suffereth long and is kind. Yeah. Right. And it's just understanding, is the fruit of the relationship, are you creating something that is pointed to Christ that is helping you grow as a person and also grow as a couple in that marriage relationship context. So yeah, of course. And especially since, I mean, we're, we're guys with, with, with wives, we know (laughs) what way that the effort and pain requirement of a marriage, that it's unbalanced in our favor. But that clarity of realizing I need to pull my end of this relationship and I can't just let somebody else do that, that clarity and that understanding, that truth that comes to your mind when you're earnestly seeking it, that's part of the fruit. Realizing and seeing the needs in somebody else. And if you can recognize that as part of the fruit, it's not like, oh, I just feel warm cuddlies all the time because when I serve, it's fun. I go and do the dishes and I want my wife to see, see, I do the dishes too sometimes, forgetting the fact that she's done it 10 times in the interim without, without ever getting, <laughs> trying to get my attention for it. And realizing like that type of clarity, and, it, and it's funny, the more we are self-directed with our service, it actually can kind of feel fun. We feel good about helping other people. And, and you can see, you want to avoid kind of that demand on each other. But if you're going to avoid demand on you from your spouse, that means you need to be proactive and serve without being demanded of. That's the solution. I think it's almost like a relationship trope of the wife trying to get the husband to do something and, say, and the husband saying, well, I don't want to do that and I don't like you nagging or whatever. It's like, well, we wouldn't even get here if you'd been a little pro- proactive in your part of the family chores or whatever. And so that's what service will do for you is it'll actually take away a lot of the tediousness of pulling your end of the relationship responsibilities. It actually can become a joy. But if you're waiting around and trying to sneak away from it and trying to get away from doing stuff until the other person demands, well, you're, you're kind of responsible for that too. It's not just the nagging spouse. It's why do they need to be a nag to get you to, to participate in the relationship? 
Aslan has that pesky habit of giving us responsibility right after we approach him. <laughs> so, all right, let's take a break. Welcome back. Last episode, every time Alex talked about Diggory, he emphatically two or three times said, he's a good boy. And I could feel it from him. And Alex, because he's read these so many times, is when he thinks about the book, I think it's hard for him to think about chapters one through seven. <laughs> Whereas I'm coming at this a little bit more green. And so having read chapters eight through 15 now, I have the same feelings for Diggory that I felt from you in chapters one through seven. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about Diggory and his interaction with Aslan and the temptation that he had to go through. I'm not exactly sure how old Diggory is. He seems to be younger. The Diggory and Polly seem to be younger than kind of the other kids and that we've met in Narnia. But every boy's a good boy, right? And every girl's a good girl at young ages. And obviously, as they become more solidified in their identity and there's a little more volition behind their behavior, maybe that changes a little bit. And then when, <laughs> once they're 18, they're on their own and stop blaming <laughs> your parents, Right. Because you're an adult and it's your own responsibility. But before then... I'm just going to say that again. Once you're 18, stop blaming your parents. <laughs> you're an adult. <laughs> Everybody has a checkered past. So figure out how to solve your own problems. <laughs> I don't have an 18-year-old, so I can, I can wag my finger. <laughs> I had this experience when I was, I was still a student, but I was doing a practicum with a preschool. And I was working, I was just doing this performance in an IQ battery, just a bunch of tests on this five-year-old boy, which is IQ tests and achievement tests. And it's, they're hours long. It's crazy that, you know, we still expect kids to go through some of the <laughs> things in order to assess them and, and think that we're getting any validity back from it. Because at five years old, I wouldn't have been able to sit through like a three-hour IQ test. This specific student was already labeled in a, like a behavior problem. And he, he was difficult. It was difficult to get him to sit still and to, and to do what I was asking him to do, to comply. And I was trying a lot of the techniques that I was using, you know, reinforce only when they're behaving appropriately and, and ignore the, the disruptive behavior, non-compliant behavior. And it wasn't really working. And I was kind of frustrated and almost like in this desperation, frustrated moment, I said, you're a good boy and good boys listen to the teacher. And, you know, I'm, I'm referring to myself as a teacher. That's the label that they, most kids have for any adult. And he goes, I am like very earnestly. And then from that point, he was just totally compliant for like five more hours as we, not, not directly. But through the next couple of days, as I had to bring him into my office and we're going through these tests and he, it was like, he just changed. And I think we forget because kids are so good at mimicking behavior. They're trying to figure out their place in the world. They're trying to find out how they're supposed to behave and they will absorb the labels that we throw at them. And that's dangerous or it can be good, but I don't know. Uh, I, I'm thinking of Carol Dweck's mindset. And if, we, and if we fix a, or if we fix anybody's identity on something, it's hard for a child to know how to break free of the identity boxes that we put them in. And as soon as I gave him an identity that he'd not had for himself, but he wanted, 
he was willing to live up to that identity and do what I defined as being a good boy. And obviously that's tricky too, because you have to be careful with what you, how you define the world to a child, because that is their world. We come into this world confused. We don't even know the language and we're taught in our home contexts, in our school contexts, how we, how to be, where we fall. And the fact that any of us get through and have any semblance of structure and ability to progress and grow and learn is, is a miracle. But as adults in the lives of, of children, it is our responsibility to help them structure their minds and understand the world in truth. Every child is a good child. And if you can help them really see that identity, they'll live up to it. Kids love structure. They love rules. In fact, a lot of behavior problems come from kids who don't understand what's expected of them. They're flailing because their mind is chaos. They don't know the rules. The, the analogy I like to use is a fence. If a, fe if a rules and structure expectations, I mean appropriate expectations for how to behave in any context, are a fence, we see kids go up and push against the fences as if, and we think, oh, they don't like the fences. Let's let the fences fall down for them and let them do whatever they want. They don't know what they want. They're not testing the fence or pushing the fences because they want them to fall. They're testing the strength of the fences and the strong, the stronger the fence, the more secure they feel, the happier they are. A happy kid is one that has clear rules, clear expectations and consistency with consequences. That's what the fences are. And you can see this and I, you know, I have a five-year-old boy and he loves rules. You teach him a game. And he loves learning how it works. And it's almost like, hey, whoa, we can, we can bend the rules now and then. And it's almost like I have to like encourage him to, to be a little more chaotic than, than just so strict and conscientious about the rules. It's surprising to me sometimes. And, and when you're trying to decide what type of structure for, for children, if you do this with your children, you set up a structure, let's say it's certain behaviors and the appropriate consequences or rewards for those behaviors. When you ask a kid to supply the, the consequence for a bad behavior, they'll, they usually overshoot. Yeah. <laughs> what the consequences? Yeah. Okay, yeah. let's say you say a mean thing to your sister. What should happen? Death. <laughs> I, lose, <laughs> I lose all games, you know, for a week or something. And it's like, well, okay, I was going to say you might have to <laughs> say sorry or something. And, and it's the, obviously they don't understand <laughs> what those consequences mean either. But just realizing that kids love that structure. And this is where I see Diggory is a good boy. I think there's a line even about like kids back then being taught not to steal a little more yeah. uh, directly than they are today. Yeah. And if we think we shouldn't teach moral morals to kids because they aren't going to understand it, it's like, well, stop putting limits on what your kids can understand. Just teach them and let them kind of structure their world based on that, that framework that you've given them. Watch as Diggory uses that structure he has to confront the most difficult temptations in this book. So when Diggory gets to the garden and first he reads, reads the saying on the wall and you brought up a couple times, go in by the gate and he goes in and he, he smells the fruit, smells delicious. He wishes he hadn't even smelled it, puts it away. But it isn't until the witch, he realizes the witch is there and she's eating the apple and she begins to 
actively try to persuade him to take this fruit back to his mother to save her. And th- this is really like, there's a couple of times when, it, when we'll listen to it later, but the interaction between Aslan and Diggory, when, when Aslan gives him the mission and Aslan recognizes that his mother's dying. And then when the witch is trying to play on that, and I like that Lewis says, Diggory said, oof. <laughs> like, it actually is like someone physically punched him when she suggests that, why wouldn't he want to give this? Because at first he says, well, I don't, you know, he asked for the fruit. I wouldn't want to live forever. I'd rather just live a normal time and go and die and go to heaven. But with when she brings up his mom, it was like someone physically punched him. How do, how do you look at how he handles that temptation that the witch is putting in front of him? And I love that he snaps out of it too the second he, she essentially insists that he leaves Polly behind. He's already met Aslan. His idea of goodness is being structured for him. Granted, he's little more than just a little kid. He already has an idea of goodness and evil. He's, he's experienced the witch. He knows she's evil. And then she's acting different to what he knows her to be. So obviously all the temptations, they're going to affect us. Temptation is not a sin. It's just the natural expression of desire for the wrong thing. That's okay. It's how you act based on it or after the fact. And so he remembers and he uses logic. He uses science to understand it. As soon as she says something, the witch says something that kind of reveals or reminds him of what kind of person she is, he snaps out of it. The temptation isn't even in there anymore. She she says uh, something about like, go back to your mother. No one needs to know. You can go back right now. You could even leave the girl. She sounds like she's doing something. And this is the white witch from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. She's not maybe as cunning as the green witch from Silver Chair. She says that as like, nobody needs to know about this, not even the little girl. Because she doesn't understand the relationship that Diggory and Polly have, a loving friendship. Diggory cares about Polly, and Polly cares about Diggory. Remember, Polly came back as soon as she could after being put in timeout. Um, and, and it's because of that, that she's, she's helped Diggory. She's a true friend. And as soon as he sees that evil as part of this, the witch's temptation, he realizes, whoa, why are you so fond about mother all of a sudden? Yeah. You know, and he realizes that she's being a liar, but he has to use logic and this scientific method. He has to understand the character of Aslan and the character of Jadis. And all of that comes and helps him. His mind is structured with truths because little boys back then are, were told not to steal maybe more frequently or the idea of goodness is so important. Whether or not he's made mistakes in the past doesn't really define him. What defines him is he has this idea, this understanding of goodness versus evil. And when he has the choice to make and it's clear to him, he makes the right choice. And I think it's important for us uh, that good, good job, Aslan, <laughs> giving, <laughs> for giving Diggory an understanding of your character. Yeah, and he, and he didn't give Diggory, other than his request that he go and get the fruit and then it would protect Narnia, he didn't give him too much of a why or too um, extensive of a, of a description of his mission going into it, which I, I always think is interesting. I think, I think that's very intentional. We have commandments and we don't always get 
the full description of why God's asking us to do something. Sometimes it's just go and go and see Pharaoh, yeah. go and cross the river. It is what you need to do and figure it out when you get there kind of thing. Polly does, I think, say, doesn't the... Didn't he know we needed food or something on their on their trip? And do you oh, remember yeah. what Fledge says? Yeah, he says, you know, I had a thought that maybe <laughs> he likes it when you ask it. <laughs> yeah, he may. I'm I'm sure he did. He would now. I'm sure Aslan knew we needed food, but he likes being asked. Yeah, and so maybe if you do need clarity, you can always ask. Prayer is prayer is really important. I think that obviously is just a a simple line, but it does bring up an interesting perspective of prayer if god does know everything we need why pray why would aslan want to be asked before he gives them food for their journey i think he's trying to keep the growth and the decision making in our court you know if we're going to grow up in him and become like him and and become a disciple of christ we have to be free agents we have to be able to think for ourselves we have to be able to plan our own trips and our own food. And he wants us to lean on him and see him as our support and our strength, which is why in asking, we are recognizing not, not relying on the arm of the flesh, but we're, we're relying on him. But we've got to do the, the work. Yeah. The most important difference between humans and the rest of God's creations are that we can do what we want. Yeah. And so to pray is kind of like saying, well, what I want is your will, not mine. Obviously, we, we can pray for things that we don't know God's will about. We can ask, of course, but we're not praying to Heavenly Santa just to, you know, fill our wish lists with all the things that we want. We're praying to be more, put more for our hearts to be more in line with God's heart, with his desires. And if we really believe that God desires the best for us, then, then that will become this natural process. But we can't do it without practicing prayer. Plenty's been written and, and said about asking you shall receive. And all growing up, that scripture always just seemed too short, seemed too glib, that, and also didn't align with my experience with asking and receiving because I asked for a lot of silly things growing up <laughs> that I did not receive. And that idea of asking and receiving, so many times in this book, there's lines from Aslan and also on, on the gate where we get what we desire. We get what we want. And it's just as short. It's the same thing. Oh, yeah, if you want it, you're going to get it. But you may not like it. Yeah, what does he say about Uncle Andrew? <laughs> The old sinner. Oh, what does he say? Because he says, how cleverly you defend yourself against all that might do you good. And then he says, like, you could, he, he gives him sleep. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so that scripture, asking you shall receive, you keep going down. If a son asks his father for a loaf of bread, does he give him a rock? And so it's tied to this idea that if you ask, you should ask. And sometimes we're going to ask for the wrong thing. But also, God's going to give it if it's good for us because he loves us. And that's, that, that's the key right there. It's not easy because a lot of the stuff that is good for us 
is the stuff that we as humans don't really feel like is good when we get it. <laughs> and so I think it's grappling like to, to align our desires with God's desires for us and what he wants us to be is when the things coming from God, I think, will be viewed as every good thing. Yeah, will be viewed as viewed in the same way that, that God sees it when he's giving it to us. Yeah, what Diggory teaches me is that a lot of my life is to learn to know what God wants for me and to want that same thing. Because he, he, wa- he wants, you know, I'm putting in quotes, more than anything, because we find out it's not more than anything, is he wants to cure his mother and he wants that golden apple to cure her. And that's what the witch is, is tempting. But what he didn't even know about himself is that what he wants even more than that is to do what Aslan wants for him. He trusts that Aslan cares more about his mother than even he does. And every time he remembers Aslan's tears, he knows he made the right choice. The whole way flying back, he wondered, did I even make the right choice in missing this opportunity to heal my mother? Right. The doubt keeps coming in and out and his faith ebbs and flows. But what keeps him on the right path is that, that memory of the desire that Aslan has for his well-being and his love that's deeper than just his mother's health. Yeah, and it even says that when he looked at Aslan's face and saw the tears, he realized that Aslan felt even more sad for his mother than he did. And I think that was a realization for a little boy who thought that his sadness was as sad as a little boy could be about losing his mother. Yeah, let's play that part. Yeah. This is from chapter 12, and it's when Diggory's been given the task and he just asks if he can, if Aslan can do anything for his mother. Up till then he had been looking at the lion's great front feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life, for the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own, that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know, grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. Knowing that grief is great, his first, the thing he says to follow that is to be good to one another. I, yeah. Why, I, why do you think he says that? I mean, Aslan's going to be good. What, what, I feel like if he says that to Diggory, it's an invitation. I think we can get to a point where if we're so, if grief turns us inward and defensive and makes us, I don't know, irritable, that seems to try a word for like real grief. But being good to one another is how you can come out of grief or at least process grief because grief's important to experience. And it shows the depth of emotion and the depth of relationships. And to realize that grief is an invitation to deep relationships, not an aversion from it. Or it can be an invitation to the deep, deeper relationships. How We need to be good to one another because the reason he's so upset about his mother's poor health is because his mother's his closest relationship, his most important relationship. And if that were to be lost, he doesn't really know that he can create relationships like that with 
other people as well, not to replace his mother, but that relationships are the source for the most full and deep experience of life. Every time you're good to somebody, you're welcoming them into an aspect of life that can bring as much joy as the sorrow of losing it. I think it's a reminder to me, I think we talk a lot about how Christ sacrificed and suffered for our good, and we receive that and should show gratitude for that. But I, I don't know how often I contemplate how I can be good to Christ. Yeah. And that good to each other concept like you're talking about of if he's bearing the weight of all of humanity on his shoulders, that in some small way, if we can help alleviate those burdens for people around us, it's the way he's really asked us to be good to him. It's a, it's a cool invitation, I think. And then when we're faced with that temptation for that self-serving desire that we have, we'll remember the goodness in, that, in the, our relationship with Jesus and be able to stay on the course, you yeah. know? Stay on the line. Follow the signs. <laughs> stay on the line. <laughs> so we're coming to an end, but I do think that I need to bring up my favorite line of all of the Narnia, the Narnia series. Yes. And that is when Uncle Andrew's behavior is being explained to us. And this is, I think it's in chapter 10. I don't remember, but he's, um, the narrator says, the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you often succeed. (laughs) (laughs) Because he's not hearing the song. He's hearing all the animals not talking because animals can't talk. How silly would it be to, of course, that lion's not singing. Whoever heard of a singing lion? And he convinces himself. And this seemed, the first time I read this book, it seemed a little outlandish. It seemed like people, you wouldn't be able to like convince yourself that something that's so obviously in your face is not true. And then I grew up a little bit. And can you see in our modern world, people making themselves stupider than they really are, trying to believe things that are obviously not true, and then shaming you unless you join in their stupidity? Placing a little ideology and dogma above maybe just reality or facts in front of them. (laughs) Yeah, I've never seen that. (laughs) But then obviously we need to be careful about what we, when we do this to ourselves, how often are we making ourselves stupider. We don't want to see what's good for us, right? How cleverly the sons of Adam defend themselves from anything that that might do them good. And, you know, that's obviously a day-to-day part of my life is I'm given the temptation all the time to make myself stupider than I really am. Pretend I see something or don't see something uh, because I want I have this desire for something that's self-gratifying. Any type of loophole from a commandment involves this type of process. Or even any avoidance of responsibility involves you trying to convince yourself that you're stupider than you actually are. And the scary thing is, is you'll succeed. Poor Uncle Andrew. It feels like another good line of advice for your children. Be as smart as you are. Yeah. <laughs> Not asking for anything more. <laughs> yeah sounds harsh but sometimes i tell my kids use your brains they don't they don't know the negative connotation and how biting that will become in their future <laughs> right now it's like oh yeah this is a this is a problem that i can think my way through they don't they're not 
taking that uh, <laughs> as an insult yet. Hopefully they don't look back and think, dad was making fun of us the whole time. It's okay. They'll be over 18 and they have a responsibility. That's true. <laughs> it's not my dang fault. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for being part of our book club. We hope, as always, that you'll continue with us. If you'd like to participate with comments, questions, criticisms, or corrections, you can always email us at a message or voice memo at bookclub at mountainairmtnair.media. And while you're at it, please subscribe, rate, and review on the podcast app. Yeah, and share with your friends. This next week, we're going to be starting the last battle. So do you feel like we gave the magician's nephew what it deserved? That is a difficult question. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Maybe we'll... we'll uh, I don't know. I don't want to promise anything. <laughs> <laughs> the good thing is you read the book, so you got to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Regardless of what happens here.